We've been in this series entitled uh, Peculiar in a Good Way, and we've just been talking through what it's like to live a life that is different in a good way, in a godly way, in in a Jesus way. And today we're coming to the portion of the text where it talks about anger. So just so you know, I'm not picking on anyone in particular. Okay, it's just the next verse up as we're talking about anger. So I'm not picking on anyone in particular. This is just addressed to every single one of you. Uh, because, because, hey, the reality is, honestly, honestly, no kidding, we all deal with anger. Some of us are angry right now, and certainly we get angry about things from time to time, and as we're going to see, that's okay, or it certainly can be okay. And so with that, uh, let's go ahead and stand out of respect for God who's speaking to us through his word. Uh, the text is Ephesians chapter 4, verses 26 through 27. And uh, we're going to be reading from three different translations. We don't normally do this, but it's actually pretty helpful on this particular occasion. First, the NIV. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Now, the New American Standard, which frankly is just a little bit more accurate with regards to rendering the Greek, be angry. Most modern translations are going to translate it that way because that's what it says. Be angry, and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not give the devil an opportunity. And now the uh, King James Version, be ye angry, and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath, neither give place to the devil. Be ye angry. And all God's people said, okay, that was, that was, (laughs) did you not hear what we just said? Give me some anger here. Be ye angry. And all God's people said, Woo, that was, May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. See, I told you you're all angry. Uh, and so actually in the, in the spirit, tr- truly in the spirit of verse 25, which we didn't read, which says, put off falsehood and speak truthfully to each other since we're all members of, one of, the, uh, of the same body. I want to ask you to do me a favor, get out your notes, get out a pen and write down two things. Okay, I want you to actually do this exercise so that it applies to you, write down two things about which you are angry. Two things that make you angry. And you're not going to have to turn this in or tell me what you wrote down later uh, or anything like that. This is just for you. And as you're writing this down, I want you to know that you're just being obedient to Scripture here, okay? Uh, Don't feel weird about this, but it's kind of strange that around churches in particular, people feel like they just can't, I don't know, admit that they're angry. And, And I think for some reason or another, we have... We have gotten the impression that the way a Christian deals with anger is they either deny it or suppress it or just kind of avoid it altogether. That's not the Christian way of doing things. Um, The Epicureans uh, were an ancient group of philosophers that basically said, if you're angry, well, that's crazy. You should stop being around people that make you angry. Just stop being angry. Go somewhere else. The Stoics, on the other hand, said, okay, you're going to get angry, but when you do, suppress it. Stiff upper lip. Try to ignore it. That's not the Christian approach to dealing with anger. So as you're admitting your anger, acknowledging your anger, thinking through what makes you angry, let me just assure you that this is something that everybody experiences regardless of age or gender or social status or any of the rest. Uh, For example, Susan is angry because her professor has given her a C on a report card that she thought she deserved an A on, and that's just because the professor was arbitrary in the grading. Her professor, Sam, is angry because, unbeknownst to anybody else, his wife has left him and has filed for divorce. 
His mom is angry because Sam never calls. And his son, Alex, is angry because his parents have split up and he feels like life isn't fair and he's not able to get a job. And their pastor, Pastor Johnny, is angry because nobody in the family ever listens to him. And Sam also happens to serve on the board and he's always saying no because he's going through this midlife crisis. And, and then little Johnny, Pastor Johnny's son, is angry because Pastor Johnny's never there because he's always dealing with Sam and his family. And on and on you can go. And that's, that's just made up. But this is very real. That's just a snapshot of one little bitty circle of anger. So I'm pretty sure in a room this size, not knowing hardly anything about all the specifics of everybody's lives, I can just imagine thousands, literally, we could go on, thousands of possible painful situations or irritating moments or difficult events that could precipitate a response of anger. So if you're angry, okay, that just demonstrates you're normal. As long as you live in this world, and as long as everything doesn't go perfectly your way and perfectly the way of everybody else around you, there's going to be anger. It's normal. And so I'm really glad that the Apostle Paul does not start out saying, well, you're going to get angry from time to time. What are you going to do? Just make the best of it. I guess sometimes anger happens. Well, okay. No. Actually, he says, be angry. Be angry angry. What that must mean is not only is it okay sometimes to be angry, but actually there are times when it is wrong not to be angry. That if you're not angry, something's wrong with you. That, it, that, that you're actually justified in being angry. That it's sometimes your duty to be angry. And yet at the same time, it says be angry and don't sin. So that must mean that while we can be angry and that oftentimes should be angry, it's incredibly easy, extremely easy to sin when you get angry. And yet at the same time, we recognize that God's saying, be angry and do not sin. So this must be possible. It must be possible for me to have a righteous anger. And yet at the same time, this must be incredibly dangerous and, and must lead to all kinds of trouble in life. See, as a Christian, we're not supposed to deny anger or avoid anger or suppress anger or just hope that one day we're never, ever going to have anger again. As a Christian, you're called to walk a very fine line. So this requires some sophisticated thinking, as most every text in the Bible requires of us. This can be good, but it can also be incredibly dangerous. So let's think this through together. And let's start by thinking this through along these lines. Is it really possible? Is it really okay? Can it really be a good thing to be angry? And yes, of course it can be a good thing to be angry. It can be good, obviously, because you look at Jesus, who oftentimes got angry. And you sometimes can certainly guess at this. If you're reading through the New Testament and Jesus says to, to Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan. I doubt he was happy when he said that. That's kind of an angry thing. But sometimes we're not guessing. Sometimes the biblical authors just tell us outright in case we can't figure it out for ourselves that Jesus is angry. For example, over in Mark chapter 3, very famous passage where Jesus is dealing with this man with a withered hand. And uh, Jesus is about to heal this man, but it's the Sabbath and he knows people's hearts. And so he knows that there are these teachers of the law around him that are waiting for him to heal on the Sabbath because they're just waiting to, to catch him, breaking the Sabbath so they can say, oh, you know, Jesus, you think you're so holy, you think you're so good. But you just broke the Sabbath. Shame on you. How could you do such a thing? Jesus knew what was in their hearts. And so here's what it says in Mark chapter 3, verse 5. He looked around at them in anger 
and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. Now, let's, let's analyze this for a second. Jesus is angry, and what does he do in his anger? Well, in his anger, he heals this man. And in his anger, he defends the law of God. Because there was the Sabbath law, you know, honor the Sabbath and keep it holy, remember the Sabbath. And because the, the idea is you're supposed to have a day of rest. The idea is you're supposed to intentionally and in a trust-filled way find your, your rest and your supply ultimately in God and in God alone. And it was meant to be a blessing. It was meant to be the kind of thing that would, would lift your spirits and restore your soul and all the rest. But somebody had taken this beautiful teaching, this beautiful ordinance from the Old Testament, and had turned it into a basically a weapon of fear and self-righteousness and self-advancement and self-promotion. And Jesus gets angry. And what does he do? He looks at all these people who are checking the situation out, and, and he says, so, is it wrong to heal on the Sabbath? Is it wrong to do right? Is it wrong to honor God on the Sabbath? And in their faces, he heals this man. See, he unleashes his anger, not against people, but he unleashes his anger to destroy sin and misunderstanding, to, to, to unleash his anger to destroy sickness. Not to hurt people, but to help people by destroying what needs destroying so as to preserve what needs preserving. Jesus, in his anger, does not do wrong. In fact, not only does he not sin, he actually pleases the heart of his heavenly Father in his anger. See, in this episode, one of the things that we see pretty clearly is anger in its purest form motivates us to take positive action when we encounter injustice. Another one of the more famous anger events in the life of Jesus would have to be when he's in the temple and there are these people that are selling the oxen and the sheep and the doves and all the rest. And over in Matthew's gospel, chapter 21, it says, Jesus says, it is written, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. And actually earlier in his ministry, Jesus upbraided the money changers. And this is recorded for us in John chapter 2. Jesus said, how dare you turn my father's house into a market? And there the apostle John records that Jesus took these cords formed it into a whip, drove out the money changers from the temple area, scattered the, the coins all over the floor, and overturned the tables and all the rest. See, when, when Jesus got angry, and he did get angry, when he got angry, good things happened. When Jesus got angry, bad things didn't happen. Good things happened because anger is the God-given capacity to be roused to action by the side of evil. A different way of putting it, but it's the same thing, Anger is the energy released to destroy what needs destroying, to defend what needs defending. Anger is the appropriate response in the face of injustice. Let me just put it to you like this. When, when a, a wife gets angry at her husband, why? Why does a woman get angry at her husband? Well, because in some respect or another, she perceives, she feels like she's been diminished or has been embarrassed or humiliated or rejected. The, the perception is, I've been done wrong. Why is it that teenagers get upset with their parents? Well, because they believe that somehow mom or dad has not been caring. They've been uncaring or unkind or unfeeling or unreasonable. The perception is, I've been done wrong. Why is it that a man kicks the tires on his car when it doesn't move or the, the gets mad at the lawnmower and kicks it? Well, because it's not doing what it's supposed to do. The machine or the manufacturer has, in some respect or another, done the man wrong. 
Why is it that we honk at the person in front of us when they don't move as soon as the light turns green? Well, I can tell you why. By all standards of justice in heaven and on earth, you should not be looking at your cell phone when you're waiting for the light to change. You shouldn't even be looking at the light to turn green. Out of the corner of your eye, you should be looking at the other light, seeing it go from green to yellow to red. So as soon as it changes, you can step on the gas and not take away three seconds from my life. But that's okay. I'm not bitter. But here's the thing. We feel, we perceive like we've been done wrong. Now, just because you perceive that you've been done wrong, just because you think there's an injustice, doesn't mean there's actually been an injustice. But the perception is you've been done wrong. Now, the perception can be wrong, and oftentimes our perceptions get off when ego and pride get involved. Okay? There was a, a woman in our neighborhood. She used to do these rants on Facebook. And I don't really like Facebook because people will rant and rave and vent and all this kind of stuff from time to time. But one of these venting sessions was like, I just can't believe they're going to build this you know, low-income housing, and then the kids are going to get bust over here, and it's going to hurt our property values. And she was just venting this anger. And then there was this anger over, we're going to have this assisted living center, you know, right here in the neighborhood, which they built right behind our house. And I kind of like it. But it was like, they can't do that. And, and that's terrible. And none of the anger was really about justice, like, oh, what's fair or helpful to the economically advantaged? Or how can we help these older people, give them an assist in living? I think helping older people to live is a nice assist. And if you have your property, you can do with your property whatever you want to do with your property, especially if it's ethical and legal. But the rants weren't really about that. It was kind of, how's this affecting me? How's this affect my property values? You know, our pride and our ego does have a tendency to take anger and distort it and twist it and pervert it. But just because anger is easily twisted and perverted because of our pride and ego doesn't mean that anger is a bad thing. Right? I mean, we have apples. I love apples. An apple a day keeps the doctor away. We probably eat, I probably eat two or three apples a day sometimes. It's not, I don't know that that's really that good, but I like apples. Now, apples will go rotten. And sometimes people will pick apples before they should. So if you're eating an apple that's kind of green or you're eating an apple that's rotten, that's not a good idea. But just because things can be distorted and twisted and go rotten doesn't mean they're bad. Same thing's true with regards to anger. Anger is an apple. It's good. Just because people can distort it doesn't mean it's bad. As a matter of fact, anger is a God thing. Anger in and of itself is not sinful. It's not evil. It's not Satan at work in somebody's life. It's not even a result of fallenness. What the Bible teaches is that anger is actually a reflection of the fact that we've been created in the image of God. And the very fact that we get upset about unrighteousness and, and injustice... And unfairness is a testimony to the reality that we've been created in God's image. That even in our fallenness, we still have a concern for justice. Your anger and my anger, the experience of it, does it, you know what it demonstrates? It demonstrates we're not mere animals. That we're not happy with the, th the way things are. We actually want things to change for the better. The fact that you get angry and the fact that I get angry is actually, strangely enough, in testimony not to our depravity, but to our nobility. What the Bible teaches is that since we bear the image of God, we have this capacity for anger. We've been created in His image, and when it gets to the reality of God, at the heart of who He is, is His love and His holiness. Because He loves people with a pure love, He gets absolutely, thoroughly, unopposedly angry 
at the things that destroy the people he loves. And in his holiness, he will not relent in opposition to the things that destroy the people that he loves. And so all of God's laws, in some respect or another, are grounded in his holiness and grounded in his love. And because they are, when we get angry, that can actually be a good thing. It's a God thing. And so it shouldn't come as a surprise that when you go through the Old Testament, the word anger is used 455 times. And of the 455 times, 375 times, the word anger is associated with God. Talking about God's anger. So without any hesitation or embarrassment, the psalmist will say things like, God is angry with the wicked every day. And you say, well, that just that makes God sound like he's not very loving. No, on the contrary. You show me a God who is never angry, and I will show you a God that does not love you or care about you. You show me a God that, that loves perfectly, and I will show you a God who is absolutely, thoroughly, consistently angry. Not hot-headed, not blowing up all the time, but consistently thoroughly, righteously angry at the things that destroy your life and the lives of others around you. I mean, you think about this. At the heart of who you are, at the heart of who I am, is anger. You say, well, that just sounds weird. Look, you tell me what makes you angry, and I'll tell you what you love. You tell me what, what makes you the angriest, and I'll tell you where your values are. And if you tell me what makes you angry, I can also tell you pretty well the good that you are on the verge of doing. Okay, for example, think about this. Remember MAD, Mothers Against Drunk Driving? It was a real big thing when I was a kid, still around apparently. You know how that got started? It got started because some moms got angry. Moms got angry over the fact that their sons and daughters were getting run over by drunk drivers and getting a slap on the wrist. License weren't taken away. It was pretty ridiculous. So they organized, and then there were like 400 chapters of MAD all over the country, and they would sit in courtrooms and make sure that the judges were carrying out sentences that were appropriate and changing laws and raising awareness about drunk driving. Here's what happened specifically. Here's how it got started. This lady named Candy Leitner, she was absolutely frustrated, upset when she learned that her 13-year-old daughter had been run over and killed by a drunk driver. But the, uh, the disillusionment and shock turned into intense anger when she learned that the person who ran over her daughter, Carrie, had also run over someone else while under the influence and had immediately been given their license back. So that's got to stop. So moms got together and said, this is, this is not right. Why were they so angry? Because they loved their children. And they did not want to see this injustice continue in this country any longer. Now, unfortunately, drunk driving still kills more people than anything else. But awareness has been raised Penalties are stiffer, and a lot of the things that used to happen back in the 80s when this first got started, they're not happening anymore. Anger can be a good thing. It is a reflection of being made in the image of God who's filled with love and absolutely stands opposed to the things that destroy people's lives. So when we talk about anger, I know that a lot of times when it's distorted, we blow up and we destroy people. But anger in its Pure form destroys the things that destroy people. It stands against the sin and it stands against the sickness. And that's exactly what you see with Jesus. When he gets angry, good things happen. Unfortunately, for some reason, we're just under the impression that you just can't be angry, that that's just not holy or righteous or something. And so we have a tendency not to name it. We get angry and we just we, we minimize it. We rename it. We we'll say, well, I'm just kind of hurt or I'm distressed or I'm just not myself or I'm so tired. 
And consequently, we live in denial and we're not able to address our anger or purify our anger because the point in, the, in, in anger isn't to get rid of it, but to use it. The point, the point when it comes to relating to our anger is to make sure that it's God-sized and God-shaped. I'll put it to you like this. You know, we're real good at renaming things and sometimes that works out. Uh, for the longest time in this country, people did like the dolphin fish. There's, there's a fish called the dolphin fish, and it's really good meat, but it didn't sell so well. And then one day somebody said, let's just start calling it by its Hawaiian name, Mahi Mahi. Sales went up. No longer are people thinking about Flipper. Um, you know, in, in Canada, the Canadians did a wonderful thing. They extracted some oil from this plant called the rapeseed plant. But rapeseed oil didn't sell so well. So in 1988, they renamed it, the FDA approved this, canola oil. Sales went up. In 2000, the California Prune Board, can you believe there's a board? The Prune Board. They decided to rename prunes dried plums. And guess what? Dried plums taste better than prunes. And the sales went up. Nobody's thinking about laxatives anymore. I'm only old people or something like this. I mean, so sales went up. We can rename things and it makes it easier to digest, easier to take down. But the problem is when we do that with anger, we live in self-denial. And when you're not exactly aware of what's going on in you, you can't actually purify what needs purification because that's what God's agenda is, is that we would be angry yet without sin. So, so this morning, let's just spend the remainder of our time thinking through how can I respond and respond appropriately so that my anger is God-shaped and God-sized. Because if, I'm, if this anger actually is a reflection of God's nature in me in some respect or another. I don't want that to be distorted. And if I have this anger, God wants me to have this anger for a reason. So I want to do something with it in in a way that is positive and not destructive. How do I purify this? How do I respond to the anger in my life? Here's five things. They're all biblical. The first one is this. Simply acknowledge that you have the anger. Okay, we've talked enough about this, but you might actually want to say this out loud or write it down. I am angry about. Here it is. After that, number two, you need to resist or restrain your immediate response uh, to the anger. Uh, That is, you don't do what naturally comes to mind or what doesn't come to mind because you just react verbally or physically. Sometimes in rare situations, maybe the anger will help you. But I've been told actually even with regards to, to fighting or physical violence when that's called upon, that anger can actually cloud judgment and it doesn't help you, especially if you're trained. You, you still want to restrain immediately what comes to your mind. Uh, and this isn't so that you don't respond. It's just that so you'll respond well. Now, you can be really sharp in the midst of anger. Somebody put it like this. If you give somebody a speech while you're angry, you will give the best speech you will ever regret. That's probably true. Uh, people who fly into a rage never find a happy landing. That's Will Rogers. And that's not just... Modern-day proverbial wisdom, this is actually from the Bible. Uh, Proverbs chapter 29, verse 11. Puts it like this, and you get there. Fools vent their anger, but the wise quietly hold it back. Another one, good sense makes one slow to anger. Here's another proverb. Short-tempered people do foolish things. Uh, Now, restraining the immediate response is not the same thing as not responding. It's just that you want to get a hold of your anger so that your anger doesn't get a hold of you. So on occasion, what you'll need to do is count to 10 or count to 100 or walk around the block or count to 1,000. Um, this is about three years ago. I felt like something was so off that I felt led to count to 1,000 days. And I quit counting about two months ago. And I'm 
pretty glad that I counted to a thousand days. Sometimes you're just going to need to do this before you respond. But the point is, when you do respond, the response needs to be good and steady, not shaky and sloppy. Because if you simply explode in anger, that is a surefire sign that you're a selfish person. Because if you're exploding in anger at somebody else, what you're doing is you're destroying the person, your husband or your wife or your children or that neighbor. You're not destroying what needs destroying in order to preserve what needs preserving. You want your anger to be directed toward the sin or toward the sickness or whatever it is that is diseasing that relationship or that person, not at the person. If you simply explode, if you don't restrain your immediate response, that is a surefire sign. You've got issues. You better restrain that immediate response because if you cannot restrain that immediate response, that's a pretty good sign that you are, you are in error with regards to your anger. Restrain it. And then after you've restrained the anger, you've acknowledged it, you've restrained that immediate response, then you try to locate the actual focus of your anger. Now, probably there are all kinds of ways, I'm sure there are all kinds of ways that the enemy twists and distorts anger and makes the apple of anger turn rotten and unedible. But one of the most popular ways that the enemy distorts anger is he makes us think, oh, since I'm angry, I have a right to be. Since I sense injustice, there must be injustice. Since I perceive a wrong has been done, a wrong has been done. Now, do you know the arrogance in that? You take the arrogance of that, and then you add that to to anger, and you're dealing with a very dangerous person. And some of you are thinking, well, I think I know the person you're talking about. Well, you just don't be that person. You don't want to be angry and arrogant. That makes you incredibly dangerous and destructive. See, when, when you're angry, it takes two things. First of all, there's the event that precipitates the anger, but then there, secondly, is the interpretation of the event. No event is self-interpreting. So you have to ask yourself the question, am I looking at the facts appropriately? Am I interpreting what I know appropriately or what I've seen appropriately? And then, do I have all of the facts? And oftentimes... In one respect or another, you're just flat out missing it. Uh, one of the shows that Gene and I like to watch together is Everybody Loves Raymond, re- reruns of Everybody Loves Raymond. And, and I know what some of you are thinking. You're angry because you wish you had our life. Yeah, we watch reruns of Everybody Loves Raymond. It's a highlight. And uh, they're good. They're good shows. Lots of funny stuff. And in season seven, episode three, there's this time where Ray gets really angry. And he's angry because his daughter, Allie, has been given too much homework. And actually, he doesn't see this in the moment, but he's angry because since he's having to help his daughter with her homework, he's not getting to play video games with his brother, Robert. That's really what's going on. But he gets angry, and so he goes to this little open house, and he talks to the teacher, Miss Purcell, and expresses his anger over her doing too much homework. And Miss Purcell, much to his shock, agrees She's got too much homework. And Ms. Purcell lets him know, but I don't want to assign this much homework. That means I've got to grade all this homework. I don't want her to have this much homework. But I'm just doing what the school board directs. But if I go and tell the school board, we can't do this. They think I'm lazy or they think I'm stirring up trouble. And so 
she shocks Ray and lets Ray know, I'm kind of on your side, so here's what I need you to do. I need you to look through all of the curriculum and make specific curriculum suggestions to the school board so that your daughter doesn't have to have so much homework. So now Ray's doing twice as much homework because he's helping Allie with her homework, and now he's got his own homework where he's reading through all the curriculum so he can make specific curriculum suggestions so that his daughter doesn't have to do so much homework. And the whole thing is really pretty funny because uh, he's totally misjudged Miss Purcell. He's totally misjudged the situation. He didn't have all the facts, and he's misjudged his ability to make a recommendation because he's in over his head because the reality is he's kind of lazy. And uh, he waits to the last second, and then when he makes the suggestion, he totally botches the suggestion. And the whole time, he never really clues into the fact that the real problem here is he just wants to play video games. So you acknowledge that you've got the anger. You restrain the immediate response. Then you really try to locate the focus of your anger by asking, am I interpreting things right? And, And is this a perceived injustice or an actual injustice? And all the way along the lines, what you need to be doing is is asking yourself the question, is this a God-sized, God-shaped anger? And oftentimes when you go through the exercise of of locating the focus of your anger, you come to determine that actually your anger is just too small. It's not that your anger was too great. It's too small because your anger was just the size of your own little world of me, myself, and I. And it gets kind of embarrassing. And you kind of immediately ought to drop it. And the reason you should drop it is nobody who reads through the New Testament ever thinks that Jesus was petty. So sometimes you get to step three and then you see, oh yeah, this is about my ego and pride and this wasn't about justice or injustice and this is just beneath somebody who's a Christ follower and you drop it. But sometimes though, you work through the anger and you go, no, actually there is something wrong here. There is an injustice that needs to be addressed. Number four, you analyze your options. Uh, you, 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 you ask, is the thing that I was planning on doing, is it really going to be redemptive and helpful to this person or to this situation, or is it going to be harmful? And uh, typically, there's just one of two options. You either drop it or you directly address the situation of the person. There's a confrontation moment. Uh, oftentimes, confrontation is the appropriate thing to do. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1 says, Dear brothers and sisters, if another believer is overcome by some sin... You who are godly should gently and humbly help that person back onto the right path and be careful not to fall into the same temptation yourself. Sometimes, though, for all sorts of reasons, you do need to let it go. And sometimes you just let it go because you know that this is not going to be helpful. It's not that you're not in the right or that you don't have something to address. You just recognize this isn't going to do anything other than harm. Uh, For example, suppose you have a supervisor and, um, and they do need some confrontation, but you know you've got five friends who over the course of the last couple of years have brought the same thing to this supervisor's attention and they've all been summarily fired. And so you pretty much figure out, okay, this person is unfair, they're unreasonable, and uh, jobs are hard to come by, and uh, I really need this. And the only thing that's going to happen here is I'm going to give some truth and I'm going to try to do it gently, but they're just going to turn and tear the truth and tear me to pieces. And I'm not going to give dogs what's sacred or give my pearls to swine. And And so you pretty much figure, you've judged and judged appropriately, you shouldn't go there. It's not of benefit to anybody and it only hurts you. That's not being cowardly, that's just recognizing the truth of the situation. So you analyze your options and then, number five, you take the appropriate action. Uh, Once you determine what it is that God would have you to do, well, you do it. And if you know that, that it's just to let it go, well, you... 
confess your anger to God. You turn that person and that situation over to God and, and you just let him have what it is that you know that you can't control. Verse 31 of Ephesians chapter 4. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. You, you get rid of it. You give it up. Because keeping it and keeping it suppressed is only going to poison your soul and the community or the family of which you're a part. You get rid of it. Or if God leads you to actually confront the person or the situation, you do it. And you do it with gentleness. You do it with reverence. And you do it with a hope of not destroying the person, but the, the thing that is destroying the person or your relationship with them. And if they... See the wrong and ask for forgiveness. You grant it to them immediately. Next verse, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. But whatever it is that God wants you to do, okay, you do it with immediacy. Because if you don't obey with immediacy, you're not obedient. A delayed obedience isn't obedience. That's largely what's being communicated when it says don't let the sun go down on your anger. That this is not a literal verse. I know that some people were given this advice before they were getting married. Don't ever let the sun go down in your anger. Don't ever go to bed before you're angry. Now, that's probably generally pretty good advice. The problem is, this isn't saying if sundown is at 8.05 p.m. and someone makes you angry at 8 p.m., you've got five minutes. That's, you know, for the first five years of our relationship, I would only make Gina angry at five minutes till bedtime because I, no, that's not how it works. The idea here is you do it as soon as possible, okay? When you know what it is that you need to do, whether to be, to act against the injustice, to confront the issue, or to give it over to God, as soon as you know what it is that you need to do, you need to do it. Why? Well, here's why. Because if you don't do what you need to do, you give the devil a place. Now, the, the Greek here is tapos the, the, for place. It's the word from which we get um, topography. It just means you give the devil a place. You give him territory. You give him ground. That's why some translations say a foothold. So if you don't do, do what you need to do, you're giving the devil a foothold. If you're not turning something over to God that you need to turn over to God, you get a foothold. Um, and sometimes we give Satan the space, and until we intentionally take that back, he'll just, he's going to stay there. You give the devil an inch, he'll take a mile if you let him. And so in, in some cases, for some people here, maybe you gave the devil a foothold 10 years ago or 20 years ago or 29 years ago when this church was born. Or maybe you've given him a foothold in some other respect from years and years past. Why? Because you didn't do what you know you needed to do at the time. And it poisoned the well. And you gave him a place. Or maybe, on the other hand, you knew what you're supposed to do. You had a, you had a son or a daughter that was unjustly treated. And you knew that you needed to get involved to do something on their behalf. And you didn't. And, and now you've not only not given justice where justice was due, now there's a bitterness in their life because you didn't stand for them. Or maybe that was your wife or a brother or sister. When you know what it is that you need to do, you do it, and you do it with immediacy. Otherwise, you give the devil a foothold, not just in your own life, but in the life of someone else. I thought this was kind of interesting. Um, Gina was talking uh, this morning uh, be before the service and um, 
with Paul, and they were talking about, you know, like our, our daughter has this little issue with a professor at ACC, and I don't get into all the details, but it was kind of, it got kind of weird, and we stood for our daughter, which we needed to. It wasn't terrible, terrible, but it was enough for us to involve ourselves. And it didn't occur to me until Gina and Paul were talking about this that actually it was a good opportunity for us to communicate to our daughter that we believe you, we trust you, we're, we're on your side, and we're going to involve ourselves for the sake of justice here. If we hadn't have done that, I wonder what would have been communicated. I wonder what grade she would have wound up with. I wonder what she would have thought in her heart toward us. We knew what we needed to do, and as soon as we knew what we needed to do, we did it. Now, that's just a very simple example. But if you let the sun go down on your anger, if you know what you're supposed to do, whether it's turning it over to God or getting involved, and you don't do it when you need to do it, hell breaks loose. You give the devil a place. See, this is where it gets kind of, kind of weird and sad, tragic, in a very substantial way. In the image of God, when we're angry, God has something in mind that he wants to see come to pass. He wants justice to be advanced. He wants his righteousness to be advanced. Anger is that capacity to be moved into action at the sight of evil. God has something in mind that he wants to happen that is good in your anger and in mine. And then when we refuse to do the good, whether it be increasing our trust in God or actually being active in whatever that situation is, if instead of doing that, not only have we missed a wonderful, glorious opportunity, but on the contrary, we've given Satan ground. And some of us, we've given Satan a chair at the table. We've given him a bedroom down the hall. We've given him a seat next to us in church. And God says, that's just not what I had in mind when I created you in my image with this capacity for righteousness and love and the anger that naturally comes with that in the face of injustices in this world. Whatever it is that God has put in your heart and in your mind to do, and you know what it is that you need to do, you better do it. And you need to do it with some immediacy. And for some of us, we know what we need to do, and we need to determine that we're going to do it or actually do it right now, even before we partake of these elements before you partake of the broken body of Christ and His shed blood, you need to do some business with God and not let the sun go down on your anger. Just thinking about the elements and what I remember in the elements, especially today having talked about anger, here's what I remember. I remember that God so loved you and He so loved me that He would not stand back and let us just continue to be beat up and beat up and beat up by our sins and by the results of sins in this world. That he, he got angry, but not hateful and not mad at you and me, but angry over sin to the point that he came. And what did he do? He didn't blow us up. He blew himself up. He got involved personally and took upon himself the very wrath of God. He came to forgive, and he came to personally get involved to the point of his death, even death on the cross. That's righteous indignation. For some of us, maybe we've got a choice before us that's going to kind of cost us a little bit to get involved in somebody else's life. Maybe there's some kid that you need to report with regards to some abuse. And God, for whatever reason, just say, no, I don't want to get involved. You need to get involved. 
I don't want to go there with my kids over my grandkids, and I know that's kind of very difficult, but sometimes you just kind of have to take a bit of a risk for the benefit of justice. And sometimes you recognize, there's nothing I can do about it. Well, there's something you can do about it. You can turn it over to God. You can entrust that entire situation to God. Whatever it is that you need to do, you better do it. Because Jesus forgives and he gets personally involved and you have an opportunity every time you're angry to do the same thing. So let's do it before we partake. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for the body that was broken, the blood that was shed. We thank you, Lord, that you love us with an infinite love and that you stand absolutely, radically, totally, consistently opposed to the things that destroy our lives. And in your anger, you didn't just blow up and blow us up. In your anger, you didn't just back up and just let it go. Or you didn't just do the step up our lip and say, well, they're just going to get what they deserve. You, you responded in total and thorough righteousness. You were motivated into action, bringing forgiveness and being involved even to the point of death, even death on a cross. And I just pray, Lord, that we would do the same, that you would give us a holy anger, not a spoiled one. But I pray, Lord, that our anger will become large and loving and righteous as yours is, that we would do what needs doing for the benefit of the people you love. Purify us. Enable us to be angry and yet without sin. That would truly be different in the best sort of way. Different as you are different. Holy as you are holy. Father, I pray for every single one of us in this room that we would do what needs doing before we partake. And I ask this in Christ's name. Amen.